to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Colin Jones, who is the CTO at Eighth Light, a software consultancy based out of Chicago, Illinois in the U.S. Colin Jones, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it, Robbie. Thanks for having me on. So as someone who also works at a software consultancy, I'd like to focus our conversation on that in particular within the kind of the scope of client services. So first off, how would you describe tackling debt to a client that doesn't have a strong background in software technology? Yeah, good question. So technical debt is a very provocative term, and I think people use it in a lot of different ways. Some people use it to mean uh, we made a mess and now we need to go fix the mess. Some people use it to mean we've made a decision to not do the best solution to this one particular piece of a system, and we are making a conscious decision that we're going to delay the payment for that decision that we know is poor but cheaper, and we're going to pay that down later, or maybe not at all if if we get to throw that out. I kind of like the second definition better because it feels more in line with the sort of financial aspects of it and where it, where the term came from initially. But I think I think so often we hear technical debt is just like, we, I've got a mess that's slowing me down and I'm really unhappy with it because I, you know, I didn't care enough initially. So often we use that term to describe just bad decisions that we just weren't thinking about like systematically when we made them. Do you feel like it's, is that more of like a, in, in retrospect, it seems like a bad decision based off of what we know now, or do you find that it's more often a bad decision and then we, we could have made a better decision at the time, given that what we knew, or is it more of a... I think I've definitely seen both cases, right? I've, I've seen cases where somebody writes a mess and by mess, I might mean like a ton of functionality just wrapped up in one file, a bunch of nested conditionals, weird names that nobody can understand after the fact. And I think for a lot of those things... If we looked at it up front, we could all agree it, it was a bad decision. And probably we just weren't even thinking about whether it was good or bad. We were just thinking about getting getting the work done. And then in retrospect, you know, whoever the next developer is might term it a bad decision or make that judgment. I like to think about technical debt in terms of we've made sort of a conscious decision about what kind of a decision we're making. Um, Maybe delaying that. We could do it X, Y, or Z. We're going to choose this way because it's quicker. And to maybe to help a project get to market quicker so they can test out an idea. But maybe we know that if it works, we are going to have to come back and do some work later on to tidy that up or, or revisit it yeah. entirely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm totally down with that, that kind of mindset for something. I, I think I'm, the thing that I'm not down with is the mindset of we're going to make code that nobody can read in defense because we're going to market faster. But like, I think it's, I think it's easy for the sort of messy situations to slow us down, even in going to market really fast. There's of course, like lots of gray area there where what defines a mess could be so terrible that nobody could read it or it could be just slightly not the way I would do it. Have you noticed there's any patterns that contribute to software collecting, say, too much technical debt outside of maybe quick to market type scenarios? I like to see teams taking some portion of their planning process. A lot of our teams working sort of like an iterative process, whether it's like got some agile flavor to it or just pulling stories and, and working through them, but some sort of planning process and there's some some ordering to the to the work that gets done. And I think for those projects that I have observed having maybe too much technical debt too fast, or maybe not, I don't even, it, it's hard for me to even use the term technical debt, too much, too much of a mess. I think those situations I've seen happening more often 
when there's like absolutely no developer technical input and it's completely product driven. I've also seen like product leaders who are, are are great at sort of balancing those concerns and planning a little bit for the long term and you know maybe 10% of the whatever the time a developer spends in a week or whatever is 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 addressing some ongoing issues like whether it's you know setting up some logging infrastructure or some pulling a a service out or or whatever I think having some developer say and in, into the work that that they're knocking out is important and I I don't necessarily mean that it has to be like parsed out as like a big project or a story in the iteration. Like maybe it's just part of what you do day to day, but I think making that visible to like product managers and project managers and and higher ups and folks like that, I think is kind of powerful because it can show, you know, what it costs. And if that cost is just built into whatever the story is that you're working on and that week over week, the stories just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger rather than having to visualize or being able to visualize what the debt is costing, then I think it's it's a lot harder to make the case that a bigger thing needs to be addressed. Without knowing all the ins and outs of like your team's process, but let's say you, since you were using mentioning story points and maybe some sort of agile flavor there, but like if you're, so your product manager has like a story that you want to work on when you're, when it gets over to your developers or, you know, maybe you're going through some story pointing process or some sort of estimating process. Do you think it's the responsibility of the project manager or the developer to account for things like things that could contribute to technical debt and or things like writing tests or any of the other documentation or those things that you feel like a developer should be accounting for themselves? Or is that something you feel like a product manager should be like adding to like their checklist of things to consider? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I've never been in sort of a, my job is project manager or product manager. I've done that sort of like ad hoc as part of things. I like to think about it being the whole team's responsibility. So like, yeah, ideally, everybody's got this on their minds. And I guess I should also roll back and say like, our process as a team, it depends on the client a lot. A lot of times we go in and work alongside our clients in whatever system they're working in. So I'll coach our developers and and our our other folks here will coach developers to raise these questions and and work through these issues and and lobby for the work that needs to be done. Things like writing tests. I mean, that's as a consultancy, like that's part of the conversations we have initially. We don't go into clients really that are gonna say you can't write tests. So this, we consider that kind of part of the deal, part of our job. You don't have to ask for permission to write tests. Yeah, or or like refactor. You know, like you go into a piece of code that's messy. You need to add a feature, and hopefully, you know, when you're done with your little your PR or your commit or whatever, then it, it looks better than than when you came in there and not worse, hopefully. There's outliers, right? Like you find a bug in production and you need to ship it now. Sure, you can add another case to the 20 line if statement or something like that, right? Since we we're talking a little bit about the type of work that your company does, maybe take a quick step back. What types of projects does 8th Light specialize in? We're historically not really a company of specialties. We started as mostly a Ruby shop, but we did some Java, some C++ early on. This was way back in the day, like 10 years ago. These days, we're doing a pretty wide mix. There's a lot of web backend stuff, a lot of large companies doing microservice kinds of things, stacks all over the map, Ruby, Java, .NET, Elixir, Clojure, Node, lots of front-end JavaScript stuff. I'm sure plenty of things I'm leaving off. We've got some design services, some sort of more straight-up training and consulting things. And then then we have some products for which we are the whole tech team, and we sort of own that through our managed services business or or through some, some startup sort of services. But yeah, I, I think our in my view, our historical wheelhouse has been kind of in 
in kind of growth stage startups that are wanting to move fast. Like they found some product market fit, they've got funding and we're, we're kind of helping them, helping to join those teams and help either level up their developers to some extent or keep their code maintainable over time and get some more security in terms of testing and other, other things. You often, as a team, find yourself collaborating with internal developers within those clients' organizations? Yeah, very often. So what are some ways that your team is able to, you know, maybe if there's developers out there that are, whether they're freelancers or maybe find themselves in a similar type of environment, what do you think are some good attributes of being a guest in someone else's code base? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So I think... And I like your terminology too, like you are the guest in somebody else's code base. And, and this is true even yeah, for people joining new teams, right? Like you join a new team, you get hired in a new job. Hopefully on day two of the job, you're not making big proclamations about how, how everything sucks in this one area of the code base. You're doing more listening than talking. You're understanding the environment under which that code was created. You, you don't have to understand all of it, of course, but like having some empathy for both the folks on your team and for the the prior developers in the code base. I think it's really easy for me personally, and I'm sure for a lot of other folks, to fall into the trap of saying, oh, you know, this isn't how I would do something. This is bad. I would really recommend you all move to, to some other some other technology or do some some different design pattern or what have you. But I think I think taking that time to sort of step back and really understand the problem space is is super important is kind of our first step. And then I, I think I've sort of tackled two different directions here in terms of like like once I understand what what I think should happen, I've gone a couple different directions and they've they've worked to varying degrees. One is what's hurting the worst. What is the the place that I can make the most impact? Where people you know what files are being changed the most and taking the longest for people to work through. And it's a thing Michael Feathers talks about a lot that I think is is really powerful. Basic kind of Git history mining stuff and in using those insights or, or whatever, any other insights about, about what's going to be the most impactful to kind of inform proposals to your, your teammates and, uh, and your boss and whoever else. So I, I think that can work really well if it's, if it's framed right. I think it can also be really interesting for this other idea of like, maybe you shouldn't tackle the biggest, gnarliest thing that hurts the worst, but maybe you should start off more by kind of building trust and grabbing the easiest thing that's going to improve things somewhat just so you can you know start to build trust with your teammates and really you know get them bought into the idea of of improving stuff for for whatever definition of improve you're using everybody's got their own insights and unique experiences that inform like what better means to them but if you can get if you can find find some alignment on wherever that you feel like that easiest thing is to improve the state of things i think that that can be a really like great first win for the team and really set you up for success in terms of uh, more of those wins. I think you make a a really good point about how when you come into that scenario of being, you know, try not to take on those bigger projects or those bigger tasks first, maybe like the big gnarly thing as as an example, because I think one of the things that's really can be challenging if depending on how large of a task that thing might be, let's say the difference between like working on a one or two week project versus something you can do in a day or two you get a feedback cycle, whereas there's always that kind of like when anyone new is part of a team and you don't have, I mean, we all, we've all probably, I'm sure you've experienced this, that like someone's working on something, you don't really know how long it's going to take. And you're kind of curious how, how they're getting along with it, the whole process. And like, what's the output going to be? And like, you're this kind of mystery person, whether you're a new person and within a development team, client services, or actually you're a new employee somewhere, just like the, the sooner you can kind of like, I think for your own well-being as well to test that you can actually go through the process and show that you 
say, write your code, make your changes, do a pull request, go through the process, get it closed, go through the feedback process and see how the process all works. Then you can take that stuff on because otherwise if there's misalignment and expectations there about what the process looks like. Like, oh, you spent two weeks. Like I could have, you know, I, it's just like you didn't understand some of the process so you didn't get the right, whatever that team's processes are, you're not, if you're not aligning really well with that, I think that just you're delaying getting feedback on that. And then you're like, people might be going, well, what did you spend the last two weeks doing? or whatever. And like, it's, it's hard to get that kind of confidence. We do the same thing with when we take over software projects. That's what we kind of focus on is taking over existing projects and working on them. And it's like, our clients always want us to work on these big new things. Like, oh, cause they're like, Hey, we need to get this big thing that's in our backlog done. We've been promising our customers. And we're like, that's great, but we need to start over here on some really small things. Not because we just want to knock down some low hanging fruit or something like that. It's more of a, we actually want to prove to you that we can collectively work together you put in a request, we make sure that we understand it, we turn it around, we deploy it to staging, we push it to production, you know, we go through the QA process with you or whatever, or get their acceptance on it, show that we can deploy it into their, their environment and get them to close it off. Like we've not only proven that we could collect we can collaborate on that something like a half a day, but we actually have access to all the right tools. And if something were to unexpectedly happen, we can jump in and switch over. But if you're working on a big thing and something pops up, they're like, there's always an expectation of like, well, can't you just jump over to this? Because that also happens. Things change. And if you're just working on that one big thing, they're like, there's no proof that you can actually like solve a problem together yet. So I think the sooner you can, as a developer, show that you can go through that process, you can build some confidence there and then take it on to bigger things. So I think, yeah, you think you make a good point there about that. Absolutely. And it's also like, harder to build trust to get the buy-in to do those big things anyway. And then even if it is a success at the end, it's like, you know, have you already lost people like a week and a half into your work? Let's talk a little bit of coding a little bit more specifically. What's your take on monoliths versus microservices? Okay. Yeah. This is one that's near and dear to my heart. Let, Let me set this up by saying, I think there are a lot of benefits to microservices and services architectures in general, just in terms of pulling things apart and having smaller teams be able to collaborate on a small thing and, and do exactly what you're talking about, like be able to do the thing and as a team of five or whatever and ship it. And I've worked on pretty big monoliths where we saw a lot of pain of people trying to integrate, running into each other. Test suite was huge, flaky, super slow painful to upgrade dependencies, libraries, stuff like that. I'm, I'm prefacing all this, and you can probably sense what's coming with some caveats that I, I, I do understand the benefits of microservices just in terms of like deployment, independent deployability of scale, fault tolerance, you know, small team ownership. We have some clients come to us wanting to fix their legacy code issues and their legacy code tech debt, bad stuff in general, by moving to microservices from their monolith. In a lot of cases... My observation has been that folks are not thinking hard enough about the costs of that decision. And there's plenty of costs that, that folks understand, like latency. I think folks pretty much agree, you know, you know, you make a network call, it's a little slower, you might need some more infrastructure. And and people basically understand those and are ready to to pay those costs when they come talk to us. I think we do underestimate often as developers and as people who are out there listening to uh, the Googles and Amazons and and who Netflixes and whoever's of the world that that this is just the way every every software product should go. We should all be using Kubernetes and and Kafka and everything else. There's a lot of downsides that I think people are are not 
thinking through completely, or if they are thinking through the downsides and how to mitigate them, they're not necessarily like thinking through what those mitigations are going to cost. So like things like data consistency and how are you going to design around eventual consistency or where the sources of truth and derived data live and backend sync processes and like who owns ETL to some business intelligence system. Designing data intensive applications is a real good eye opener to like how complicated these things can get. Even in just a React, Rails, Postgres sort of dead simple app. And in fact, take React out of that and make it just a server-to-server thing with just static web access. And and I, I could go on and on about about the costs. I've got a, a talk I gave it a couple of years ago, I think, uh, maybe last year, about the costs. Because I, I think there's a lot of them. And I think, I think folks in general underestimate how many things they're going to need to think through and pay for and how big the folks who are out there giving talks about, you know, singing the praises of these kinds of architectures, how much bigger those companies are and how much more they're budgeting. And I talked earlier about like thinking about some technical spend within your iteration or within your prioritization stuff, that operational cost, that overhead rises in my experience a lot when you move to a microservices architecture. But I, I prefaced all that by saying I do understand the cost and, and often they're worth it. We have a lot of clients for whom they're totally worth it. They have enough developers that it would be crazy for them to to try and stick everything in one application. They could probably do it, right? But there's costs in that case as well. So my default is always to start with a monolith if I can, if I've if I've got any say in it, which hopefully I usually do. And then as absolutely necessary and in a very principled way, I try and extract services. Hopefully, if it's possible, modularizing. I'm in the process. I'll give you an example from, I think just yesterday or two days ago, I proposed splitting out a service for this very small startup app, which I wouldn't ordinarily do, but it's necessary in this case. It's an Elixir backend. There's some digital signature PDF stuff we're going to have to do, and we're going to need some other thing that it may exist, but I haven't found something that's super mature in terms of PDF digital signatures on the Erlang virtual machine. So we're probably going to spin up a JVM service for that, and it'll be small and might even be the sort of thing where we shell out to a command or something, but it'll definitely be like a separate process. So I see a lot, a lot of downsides to, to microservices and I don't want to be a hater and I don't want to like discount people's experiences who have had a great time with them. But I think for a lot of folks who are considering them, I would just like them to think through the costs in a more principled way than a lot of folks do by default. In my experience, like I've seen, I've seen advantages to going down the microservices path, but I think you made a good point about how that a lot of those times those projects or those companies and organizations have a bit more budget, have a bit more capacity to, to do that kind of a little bit more thoroughly. Cause we've also seen a lot of projects where how does premature optimization fit into this, in this conversation in a way. And I think like we've talked about like the fault tolerance aspect to a microservices. We've we've seen projects that are built with Ruby on Rails and have separate repository for the React front end. They're completely coupled together that if they're not deployed at the same time to make changes, like it's so it's like a monolith, but it's not. You just have now you have two things to deploy in parallel because you haven't handled any of the fault tolerance stuff. And now every change is requiring you to make changes in two different repositories. Like there's a project we inherited that has that problem, and we're just like, this is kind of ridiculous that we've and we have to come up with a better way to handle that. And it's interesting to see the. that was nice that they built it this way, I suppose, but it's actually creating a lot of, of extra work that just feels completely unnecessary, especially given, you know, our experience with Ruby on Rails over the years. Like, why, what advantage are we getting out of this thing? It's like, I think, and sometimes I, you know, I think I've touched on it on a couple of other episodes recently. Sometimes one of that scratching developers itches 
more than like their curiosity about trying something. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but there's a cost to the long-term cost to each of the decisions you're making as a software developer that you may not have to necessarily pay yourself outside of maybe having to do the work. But if you leave that project at some point or that business or whether you're a freelancer or working at an agency, those decisions have long-term tasks for those clients. And I don't think they always, they're always more about like, how am I going to approach this? Not how is the company going to be responsible and on the hook for this, for whatever decisions I made right now. So that was the topical thing at that point in time. So I don't want to like discourage people necessarily from experimenting with new things, but sometimes you're doing that on someone else's dime. And then someone else maybe like us has to come in and pick it up and figure out how we're going to do it. And it slows us down and we're not able to do things as quickly as we like. And that's expensive for us. And that means that it's expensive for our clients. And we're not necessarily upset with you as a previous developer that did that. It's just, we've learned from that. So do you often find yourself more on the side of team refactor or team rewrite? Almost always. I default to refactor always to a fault. I know like in my heart of hearts that rewrite um, is often the right choice, particularly I think for those cases where the scope is flexible and where you can really reimagine what the product needs to do. I think for those cases where it really needs to, the product needs to have all the same capabilities as it did before. We just need to improve it. You know, maybe improve it in some drastic way, but it it has to have at least a baseline of, of wherever we started. I think for those cases, where the words feature parity ever get spoken, I'm going to push really, really hard for refactoring and, and improving incrementally. Yeah. And in general, I, I tend to, to lean on the incremental refactoring. And, and really, like this is actually back to the same conversation as earlier, right? Like, do you scratch the biggest itch? Do you fix the biggest pain point and like big bang, you know, knock out this hugely impactful thing that's ultimately going to make things a lot better over time? Or do you show incremental progress and improvement and constantly make things better? And I tend to pick the incremental stuff in general. But yeah, it's always interesting when you find those cases where you've got somebody who knows the product extremely well, the what it currently does, who knows their customers, and who's able to make those hard decisions to say, you know what, this use case does not matter anymore. Let's just get rid of it. That doesn't matter in the new thing. Here's this very simple functionality that we need to build. And in those cases, I think I'd be totally on board with a rewrite. And I would in a lot of other cases too. I think the, the choice to rewrite can be really empowering for a lot of developers. It can be fun to work on a greenfield thing. I sometimes feel a little bit paralyzed in those situations. I like to to tinker and improve and get the quick feedback. But I think microservices architectures can be a great example of places where it's pretty safe to refactor because hopefully, you know, once you've paid down all your costs, you've hopefully got like contract tests and of all your, you know, your clients are telling you what they expect and got sort of safeguards in terms of like canary testing and all the stuff that comes before that in your deployment pipelines. And so your rewrite of what is hopefully a microservice that's along what I think Sam Newman's definition of where it's like a two-week rewritable thing, then yeah, sure, rewrite a thing if it's going to take two weeks. But if it's going to take you know a year and that's your estimate, then it's probably going to take two years or and never get finished. But And so yeah, that, that's the kind of situation I don't want to be in. We'll be back with my interview with Colin in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding conversations like this valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers. I'm not sure how you heard about it. Perhaps it was written in some sand or in some concrete while you're walking along a sidewalk somewhere. But whatever it is, thank you to whoever shared that in the first place with you, and I hope you can help pass on the word. Maybe consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts. Either way, thank you again for listening. 
And now back to our interview with Colin Jones. How does your team work with your clients when it comes to prioritizing and addressing technical debt? Like, how do you go about approaching that with your clients? Yeah, it's a good question. So it it varies a lot depending on the client. For the folks where we're the whole tech team, it's really kind of a matter of us kind of being we are the whole tech team, so it's it's up to us to sort of be the experts and and give the client everything they need. We can push as hard as we need to if it's something that actually has to get done, or we can sort of lay out choices and trade-offs and it's got to be kind of in the language of the client. Whoever we're talking to, you know, if they're going to understand Increasing costs over a long term versus you know a two week payout now to to decrease the long term cost capex opex sort of you know finance language then that's the language I think we we got to learn to speak as developers but then you know we've also got plenty of clients where our folks who are leading our teams at our clients are extremely technical and we voice some concerns and say hey there's this race condition here that we think is going to bite us if we don't address it and they say okay let's do that thing and so you know it can be as formal as a proposal document and a whole separate statement of work and as informal as as just saying well actually i, I was going to say as informal as just having a quick conversation but then there's even a further level which is just you know knock it out just while we're in there rename some stuff extract a class etc the small things that there's not even a conversation around it right you you just do it just do it you know, I'm assuming that not every software developer that you hire shows up with the skill sets of a consultant. How do you go about helping them understand what that world is like? Or has that not been such a big thing to kind of focus on there? No, it's a really good question. And I think I would even go a step further and say, like, many of the folks we hire, like, we've historically hired almost exclusively through our apprenticeship program. We like I joined 10 years ago as an apprentice with like two or three years of like Rails brochure, little five, 10 page website stuff. So yeah, e- even like not consulting skills, but just needing to learn how to write automated tests well and how to pull concerns apart and decouple. And, and I, the, the reason I'm answering that way is, is because I, I think for both, our answer is, is kind of the same. And that's having valuing continual learning and growth through our apprenticeship, that's that's part of it, right? We expect people who come out of that to have some baseline of, of skills and in a bunch of different areas. And some of those areas are communication sort of things and empathy and you know, the ability to, to talk at the right level of abstraction with their with a customer. And then we have reading clubs and roundtables and professional development mentors once folks finish their apprenticeship or, or if they're not doing an apprenticeship, if they're coming in as, as a a more senior person that's doing more of a apprenticeship like thing was like more of an onboarding really then it's more the kind of the latter category of, of things that's sort of more ongoing it's baked into our our job description so it's like everybody's incentivized to be consultative and to to understand those things and we've got levels of folks involved in a project right from the sales and account management side and directors who are usually more technical folks but not necessarily who are who are really like helping to organize staffing and, and making sure folks on the ground are, are doing great work and, are, uh, and our clients are, are pl- really pleased. So I think a big part of it is that sort of ongoing feedback and learning from folks who are more experienced than you when you go on to a client, right? Hopefully, we're not putting any of our brand new folks who, who don't really have any consulting experience onto a project by themselves. And you know, we've made mistakes in that area in the past and have learned from them. So yeah, I think in terms of the how, I, th- I think just valuing learning and, and having everybody incentivized to 
to keep learning. And and actually part of, I mean part of it is screening for that kind of thing in the hiring process too, right? Like just making sure people are are communicative and and understand what consulting is as a business and are interested in the people side of things as well as the software side of things. Have you noticed that I mean, because it's been my experience like sometimes you'll talk with people through the interview process or when you're recruiting people early on in people's careers they really want to be able to focus on learning to be a good software developer. I think that's like priority number 1. And they'll take a job where they can get one so they can start practicing that skill. And then I think one of the things that I'm sharing is like I've struggled with sometimes finding that bring people in and then six to 12 months later, they're like, you know, maybe I'm going to be better off at a product company because there's this illusion that I can focus more on being a developer there and not necessarily working on trying to figure out how to be a consultant and a developer at the same time as if they're two different things entirely. But, you know, there's some overlap there. But I don't know. I was just curious about some of the experiences that you've had in that capacity. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely had people leave who are really excited about going to a product shop, some of whom I think made good decisions and some of whom I I would have, you know, liked to coach them into a different decision. You're always going to have to convince somebody to buy into your your ideas, your technical ideas that you've got. I don't think there's anything about being on an internal company team that means like your ideas just get accepted whole hog. Maybe you're you come in as the team lead and that's your role and and so so they do. That's a, a separate story. But I think a lot of people I have seen in the past, at least a handful of people, have the idea that that by joining a product company, they're going to have somehow the ability to influence things without having to develop the consultative people skills. But I think those those skills you need them regardless. Our business model is different than a product company. The way you convince people to make a, a decision is pretty similar. I think you know, as an outsider, you you have a different you know, perspective and voice and you can you can speak to different things. Men as an insider, you have presumably the longer view in mind, although we're in companies for a pretty long time often. I think there are differences and yeah, I have seen that I've seen folks migrate in that direction as well. I'm not trying to be too self serving for you know our audience here in terms of like trying to be an advocate for going into client services. I've always when people have asked me what should I do? Should I, it's my first job as a programmer. Should I go try to find a job at some startup product company or something or a company that's well-established and it's 10 years into the startup phase? Or should I go work at like a client services company? What do you recommend for me? And I'm like, well, you're, you're going to have to get some experience one way or another. And my own experience is like, well, I learned more through the client services experience of, I got to work on a wide array of different types of projects, different situations. And I learned it's almost like I got to be like a temporary employee at like all these different companies in a really short period of time, whereas you get to go learn how it's working at one company for a couple of years. And I'm just curious, like what sort of do you often get asked that question from budding software developers? And what sort of response might you have to that? I don't remember being asked that might have, but I have, I have a really bad memory, Sue, so I might just be forgetting something that happened two weeks ago. I, it's, it's hard for me to actually answer because I've never worked for a software shop that wasn't a consulting shop. I've always been in, in sort of an agency world. So I, I can't actually answer from experience. But yeah, it's interesting, though, when you're, when you're talking about you know going into a company for a year or two. And I, I think a lot of folks in the software world, you know, a consultancy with a long-term product view like ours, you know, maybe typically like on the order of six months, a year, something something like that is is what we're looking at. Um and, and sometimes longer. I was I've been on a project for two and a half years before as an individual contributor. And it was great, great experience, learned a ton. But it's interesting that like in the product world, you know, people might hop jobs that often. And so they're they're still getting those different perspectives from different companies. But yeah, I, I mean for me, I, I like 
about client services and consulting, the fact that we have kind of this organizational view of all these different experiences and are able to sort of pull those together and have access to a lot of different people at any given time who are working on crazy different problems. And so like anything that comes up, we've you know got our shared community where we can sort of talk through things as a group with what it fe- kind of feels like people from a lot of separate companies and the overlap and the number of collective projects we've touched is is a lot. And I don't know if it's more than any given product company, but it, it feels like there's that potential. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, just think about how sometimes when we're going through, when we're interviewing people that say, or maybe say two or three years into their career, they're like, okay, it's time to move around. And maybe they've been at a product company the whole time. And then we'll go through our process of interviewing with them. And like, you know, on paper, it seems like they've got probably a decent amount of level of experience. But then when you dive into some of the technical things, you realize they were kind of like, they only had so many options to learn so much. And they were kind of like working in this one area of say a code base. And then you started like, well, what about these other areas? Like, well, I've never touched that. I'm like, there's like a huge gap now in your knowledge skill because you've been kind of specialized in your company on one part of the business. Like I worked on APIs. And so like, I don't know anything about working on this other area of the application or anything. I've never built any features or it just it can come across as with its own set of challenges. For sure. And yeah, that's definitely like one of the trade-offs I definitely see in, I guess, jumping to the defense of the product companies a little bit in that, yeah, that generalist specialist trade-off is a really interesting one. We were definitely mostly in that generalist polyglot world, like which has a lot of benefits in terms of seeing you know, how different communities do things, but it also has downsides, right? Like I, if I have to join a, pr- a project next month that's in .NET, then suddenly I got to learn this ecosystem that I don't know very well and, and go in there and, you know, ramp up really quickly and, and hopefully bring those experiences up pretty quickly. But, you know, if I'm, if I'm at a product shop and, or a series of product shops really focused on my yeah, specific area of the world, APIs or whatever, then I'm able to be like, really like be the expert in that area. And that, that's potentially has a lot of leverage. I have a couple of final questions for you. One, what do you believe are a few common traits of maintainable software? Automated testing of some kind. Without it, it just makes my job as a, as a maintainer so much harder. Like I, I don't want to have to click through the entire app and understand the entire thing in order to to make a small change or, or even a big change. I want some sort of testing. And and you know, like I don't care if tests don't give me a hundred percent confidence. I just want some increasing level of confidence that things are working properly. So some kind of automated testing, some sort of, you know, like production monitoring, alerting, observability, whatever you whatever you want to call that kind of world. I think that's that's super important because testing is going to fall down at some point and I, I want to know before my users do or, may, or at, the sa- at least at the same time as my users do when something's going wrong. This is less of a technical thing, but I think it's important, like collective ownership, the whole team really like feeling some responsibility for the success or failure of a piece of code or a service or whatever, and being able to like tune things up and make tweaks and fix things without, you know, I, I have to go to person A and convince them that they should make this change to their thing. I want to go and be able to work, work with them and have it be sort of a team, team ownership sort of situation. Yeah, those are kind of big ones. I mean, there's lots of like in the code base kinds of, you know, good naming and things being fairly decoupled, whatever you want to call it, like decoupled, decomplected, you know, solid or modular, you know, everybody call it Unix philosophy, right? Any, any of these things, people to me in a lot of cases mean the same thing. I think those can, those can be pretty important in the long term as well. And so what book do you find yourself most often recommending to software developers? These days, the Design Data of Intensive Applications book by Martin Kleppmann might be because we're going through a book club on it right now. And one of my colleagues is going through it for the third time. So yeah, that book is really great. 
I still like the refactoring book, the Martin Fowler refactoring book. Actually, I haven't, I haven't gone through the new edition, the JavaScript one that he just came out with, but I, I like so many things about that book. I feel like the first refactoring book was recommended by someone that had offered me a job at the time back in 2004. I remember just like spending a couple of weeks just being like, oh my gosh, this is going to change everything about how I write this PHP code as I start this new job. And then um, when he came back from his holiday vacation, he told me that he found this other app or this other framework called Ruby on Rails and wanted to build everything in that instead. That's how I got introduced to Ruby on Rails and I didn't get the job. It became the same, but refactoring was like this huge, at the, at the time it was just like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And then I was like, I just, I just wanted to spend time cleaning up my code, which was not something I was ever super motivated to do before. So great book. Where can people find you online? Oh, I am TRPT Colin. Pretty much every social media thing, GitHub, Twitter, whatever. I just trumpet is the just to head that off. So it's the I, I was a trumpet player in a former life. Yeah, so they're eighthlight.com, but TRPT Colin pretty much everywhere. Excellent. Well, I, yeah, I really appreciate you joining us on Maintainable today to talk about the joys of client services, how that relates to building maintainable software and dealing with technical debt and working with you know, not only hiring and grooming your developers to become good consultants, but also to have that mindset, even if you're in a product shop. Um, I think those are all really good topics to kind of touch on today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Really appreciate it. It was a fun conversation. Thanks for having me.